Hello, boys and ghouls, and welcome to an episode that is literally about a literary giant. And by giant, I mean he was five foot ten and lanky. He wrote of the Necronomicon, he called Cthulhu, he's the Rhode Island scholar, and the topic of episode 36. He's H.P. Lovecraft. You want to see something really scary? They come from the bowels of hell, a transformed race of walking dead. Zombies, exploding heads. Psychos, fanatics, murderers, nutcases. Now, do we all agree that what we are dealing with is vampires? I know that one of you is a werewolf. Ain't nothing but dead folks. I want to kill you. The undead. You ever talk to a corpse? Satan is our pal. It's boring. Throw the third switch! Look! The third switch! It's my joy in life. Okay, looks like it's picking everything up. Good, it should be. Um, let me get a, a swish of coke. Looks like I got a uh, star pasties. Who'd you get? I got the cow cowgirl yippee. Yippee. She literally jumped out at me. Hey, Kat. Hi, Marshall. This is the first time we've sat down in front of a microphone since before the holidays, during which I, uh, I went home to uh, Pennsylvania, just outside of Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. And usually my, my trips home, they're just sort of, I just kind of hang around my family, run errands with them. I don't really set out to do anything. Yeah. You know? It's nice. It's a little slower pace than your life here in Los Angeles. Oh, yeah, which is just go, go, go. Yeah. But my sister asked me, she was like, do you want to actually do something, like go somewhere and experience something in Philadelphia? Points Jen. Okay. Y- yeah. And I was like, eh. And then she goes, well, maybe we can do something, you know, for your, your spooky gab. Oh, sure. And I was like, okay. So I typed in uh, spooky things in Philadelphia. Most are graveyards. And then I came to the Edgar Allan Poe house. Oh, wow. But Baltimore claims him because he died in Baltimore. But he lived in Philadelphia for a year, maybe a little more than a year. And during that time, he wrote The Black Cat and The Telltale Heart. Whoa! Yeah. And his house has been preserved and is run by, like, the national parks. So you can just go there. And there's a big mural of a uh, Poe. That's really cool. It was really cool. That's awesome. And those are two very important works of his, that very well-known works, yes. that were written there. At the same time, with similar endings. Oh. They both end with something, uh, with, with the cops coming over, there being a sound, and them unwalling uh-huh. and discovering the murder. Yeah. Uh, one, the sound was real, it was a cat, and the other, the sound is imagined, which is the heartbeat. Uh-huh. Nice tour, a little dry, and in one room, a floor panel could come up, and there was like a rubber heart, so I had my picture taken oh, with the rubber heart. Oh, my word. And they like to end the tour in the basement. Of course. Because the basement's the creepiest part. Yeah. <laughs> and from the um, the black cat. She was like walled up in the wall. And so they had like a stuffed black cat. Oh, come on. That you could take pictures next to. Yeah. And I did. And like I'm, a, I'm an okay Poe fan. Yeah. But there's people who are big Poe fans. There are. And she even asked. She said, does anybody have any Poe tattoos? Because she gets a lot of those. I'm sure. And um, there was one gal who... Stayed behind to take a picture with a black cat and then looked around the floor for like a little piece of brick she could take with her. 
Wow. From Poe's home. I wonder if those little uh, bits of brick that the gal picked up were really from the house. I'd read a story years ago that said at the Acropolis, because people would go there and just like peck off little bits of the Acropolis with like a tiny hammer. Enough people do that. Enough people do that. It's like, hey, what the heck? I heard Stonehenge. That was also a problem. I believe it. Um, That they would spread around little chips of marble (laughs) around the Acropolis. So people would be like, ah, souvenir. (laughs) I wonder if it was someone's job to just like spread around just enough bits of brick. Because they know people are terrible and will steal little pieces of brick. Yes. Still stealing. That is so awesome. I love that. Yeah. I'm jealous. That was a good afternoon. Unhappy is he to whom the memories of childhood bring only fear and sadness. Wretched is he who looks back upon lone hours in vast and dismal chambers with brown hangings and maddening rows of antique books. Or upon awed watchers in twilight groves of grotesque, gigantic and vine-encumbered trees that silently wave twisted branches far aloft. Such a lot the gods gave to me. To me, the days, the disappointed, the barren, the broken. And yet, I am strangely content and cling desperately to those seer memories when my mind momentarily threatens to reach beyond to the other. Marshall. Hey, cat. Quite often when, when I encounter something I want to learn more about in the world of horror or something I'm finally getting around to that's taken me a while to come around to, yeah. I pull out a trusty little textbook of sorts, which is Stephen King's Dance Macabre. Yes. I haven't read it cover to cover yet, but as he even says in his uh, introduction to the book, the book is meant to be enjoyed either reading it front to back or referencing So you're not breaking any rules by referencing it. No, he told me it was okay. And Stephen King did. (laughs) (laughs) And for this episode of Boys and Ghouls, we're covering... H.P. Lovecraft. H.P. Lovecraft. A topic that neither you or I knew a terrible lot about, but sometimes this show, when it's at its best is we sort of give each other the same assignment. Mm -hmm. We go our separate ways for a month and then come back and share what we've learned. Exactly. I've heard Stephen King talk about H.P. Lovecraft. I've read stories about him finding a box of his father's old paperback books. And one of the most compelling to him was a book of Lovecraft stories and the artwork on the cover. And it really affected him. But I thought to myself when we started this, I was like, let's go see what Uncle Steve has to say. Because, you know. I frame everything in my life through Stephen King. Sure. Um, And it was just kind of a bit of a disclaimer that though he doesn't cover Lovecraft heavily in Don's Macabre, he says something about how Lovecraft, although he had died before World War II could fulfill many of his visions of unimaginable horror, he doesn't figure largely in the book, but the reader would do well to remember that it is his shadow, so long and gaunt, and his eyes, so dark and puritanical, which overlie almost all of the important horror fiction that has come since. It is his eyes I remember best from the first photograph of him I ever saw. Eyes like those in the old portraits which still hang in many New England houses. Black eyes which seem to look inward as well as outward. Eyes that seem to follow you. For me, that was a nice way to preface my experience my journey through Lovecraft literature, which is just the idea that he's, can... he's sort of granddaddying so much of what you love, which yeah. is 
Stephen King. And what, who was it with Last Man on Earth? Richard Matheson. Richard Matheson. It's like that thing where when we covered the Last Man on Earth and other subsequent pieces that kind of came from Matheson, I discovered like, oh, wow, a lot of things that I am in love with and have seen and have been a part of the fabric of like, oh, well, that's always been there. It hasn't always been there. And it was Matheson. It took someone Same to kind of thing really with, spearhead with Lovecraft in, in many ways. Yeah. So Howard Phillips Lovecraft, born in Providence, Rhode Island, on August 20th, 1890. And Rhode Island. All right. So just going through Stephen King, which is Maine, mm -hmm. close neighbors, and both are subject to the same, what do you want to say, melancholy of, sure. of the sea? Sure. It's a place that both provides most of the economy, at least along the coast, mm -hmm. as well as just a, a constant source of death. Absolutely. I'm not going to deny external influences on Lovecraft or Stephen King as having shaped them, because of course that's part of it. But it's been my impression that so much of what affected Lovecraft when you read about his life, and especially his early life, had less to do with his environment as far as the wider scope of it, like sure. where he lived and everything, than it did have to do with his home life and his experiences with like his mother. Well, Rhode is Island really weird. is not a state full of Lovecrafts. <laughs> we've traveled a bit and we've found like a masochist in Newport, we're Rhode Island bound. Despite it can get pretty gloomy during uh, certain months. And of months. course, and I'm sure that had something to do with it, but reading that his mother told him he was like ghastly or something. I really? Think it was either ghastly or gruesome or something to that effect. And told oh, that him, sticks with you. And told him he shouldn't go outside. And so he was basically kind of a shut-in as a kid. Like, he didn't go outside. He didn't get sun. He was... He really he was. was. gaunt and awkward, and he hated to be around people. I mean, this is... I'm going to bring this up. It's very weird. But his wife, after he died, was um, vocal about the fact that he didn't like sex. He was kind of disgusted with... I mean, there's a really? lot of self Wasn't that his ex-wife by then? Well, he died. <laughs> okay, yeah. I'm sorry. I thought his biography went that he got married and then divorced and then moved back to Rhode Island from New York. I also read that he was an adequate lover. You did? Yeah. No complaints in the bedroom. Okay, but according uh, to your source... From Sonia Lovecraft. Are you ready? Should we really be diving into this part of him? Uh, Answer is yes. Go. Yes. Here's why. Okay. I think it pertains because... Much of his writing draws a lot of its horror from the feeling of isolation and self-loathing and disgust at the human form and, and a lot of physical horror. Sure. A lot of weird existential, like, just straight up in the mind, I'm going mad horror. And not a ton of women. No women. I mean... There's well, some anyway, women. Sonia Lovecraft. Okay, Sonia Lovecraft, time to dish, <clears throat> said hmm. uh, of okay, this tall fellow... I'm going to preface this with... After his death, Sonia Lovecraft told a Lovecraft scholar that he was a virgin when they married in 1924, aged 34. Nothing wrong with that. Mm. Before their marriage, Lovecraft reportedly bought numerous books about sex and studied them in order to perform on their wedding night. Sonia later there said... There was no videos. <laughs> Sonia later said she had to initiate all sexual activity, saying, quote, 
The very mention of the word sex seemed to upset him. He did, however, make the statement once that if a man cannot be or is not married at the greatest height of his sex desire, which in his case he said was at age 19, he became somewhat unappreciative of it after he passed 30. I was somewhat shocked but held my peace. Hmm. But the point is not to make fun of him. The point is to say... He was very uncomfortable with himself. And who wouldn't be with a mother who told him he was disgusting and shouldn't go outside during the daytime? And he and he didn't well, go outside a lot. To go day. further on that, it's thought that his mom was a like like Munchausen. Oh, what's really? The, what's the one where you project it onto other Munchausen people? Munchausen by proxy. Munchausen by proxy. I didn't know that. I read that she was, both his mother and father were separately committed to the same mental institution, but. Yes, his father was committed wow. when he was four. And then he grew up with his Munchausen by proxy mom, who kept him inside a lot. I found the G word. She called him grotesque. There it is, folks. Warned him to hide inside so people couldn't see him. That's terrible. Um, he rarely went out in public during daylight. He would only leave the house after sunset, staying up late to study science and astronomy and to read and write. He would routinely sleep late into the day, developing the pale and gaunt bearing he is now known for. Um, Speaking of which, mm -hmm. I'm sure there's lots of photos of him. I keep seeing the same one over and over. I've only seen a couple. It's like Mostly Billy the Kid. It's that one where he's like in the study kind of. Yeah. And he's got this like just weird look on his face. Like yeah. his lips are kind of pursed. Stephen King talks about that. I mean, that's kind of what he's describing is that he'll never that, forget that picture. That one picture. Looks, it's kind of disturbing. Somewhere is probably like him and his wife took a trip out to Cape Cod and they both stuck their head through the, uh, <laughs> the muscle man cut out. Yeah. I'm sure that picture exists somewhere too. I don't but know. But as a reader... All we're getting is that one photo of him just looking spooked out. Not scary. You're not afraid that guy's going to come and knock on your door. It's a picture of a guy who's afraid something's going to knock on his door. Yeah. His stories were mostly short stories. Mm -hmm. A little bit was novel length. And those stories, his particular horror, he never subscribed to vampires, which were hot at the time, or werewolves. Right. It was more like the horrors inherent in the human psyche and the horrors inherent in a complete different world he's created out of thin air and deep multi-layered caverns of horror so great that you'd go mad just looking at it the necronomicon spells are like sonic keys that can open portals to other dimensions where the great old ones wait to take over the earth yeah give me an example cthulhu Gesundheit. cthulhu i heard of him he's bad right he makes Gozer look like Little Mary Sunshine. You're kidding. Um, I want to read a passage, just, just literally the first paragraph of The Call of Cthulhu, which, by the way, is not how you pronounce it. How, how would you pronounce it? Oh, no, 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 no. I pronounce it Cthulhu. What's the popular mispronunciation? Oh, no, that's the... Hold on. <laughs> it says Cthulhu is pronounced Kululu. This is in a letter written yeah. by Lovecraft to... An amateur writer, Dwayne W. Rimel, explaining right. how to pronounce it. This is Lovecraft himself. The name of the hellish entity was invented by beings whose vocal organs were not like man's. Mm -hmm. Hence, it has no relation to the human speech equipment. 
The syllables were determined by a physiological equipment wholly unlike ours, hence could never be uttered perfectly by human throats. So the point is, none of us, no matter how we, hard we try, could possibly pronounce it. Okay. Because it was, the name was invented by something not human and therefore something who could pronounce things we can't pronounce. But... The actual sound as nearly as any human organs could imitate it or human letters record it may be taken as something like Kululu with the first syllable pronounced gutturally. I guess like, maybe Kululu with the <laughs> and very thickly. So Kululu. This is just a great example of Lovecraft trying to describe something that is wholly unlike anything you've ever heard before. You know, whether it's music yeah. or a painting or whatever. I'll say this. If he had only one skill, that skill is coming up with great uh, sounding names for things. Of course. Like, okay, I'm, apparently we've all been mispronouncing it, but Cthulhu. Yeah. And just Arkham. Oh, yeah. Say it with me. Arkham. Arkham. You know nothing or good Miskatonic happens there. Miskatonic University? Yeah. Come on. Which Miskatonic was just supposed to stand in for Brown oh, University. Yeah. He took a place it was just called Brown and called it Miskatonic. Beautiful. Arkham it's was... a fictional town. Fictional town. Created by H.P. Lovecraft. And home of Miskatonic University. Yeah. doesn't seem to mention other goings-on from other stories. They don't really cross-pollinate in the way that, again, Stephen King would. Right. But just the fact that it's in Arkham. Right. Yeah. There's... If, if you've read enough, you're just like, ooh, that place. Which, as we know, went on to become the name of the asylum in Batman. Yeah. The Arkham Asylum. Um, so I'm going to read another passage later in the podcast from Herbert West Reanimator just to give a different example of something more visceral. But I think the beginning of The Call of Cthulhu is a really good example of the conceptual writing. Um, the most merciful thing in the world, I think, is the inability of the human mind to correlate all its contents. We live on a placid island of ignorance in the midst of black seas of infinity, and it was not meant that we should voyage far. The sciences, each straining in its own direction, have hitherto harmed us little. But someday the piecing together of dissociated knowledge will open up such terrifying vistas of reality and of our frightful position therein that we shall either go mad from the revelation or flee from the deadly light into the peace and safety of a new dark age." Which is just mm. his beautiful way of saying our brains protect us from the horrors, from the that are horrors out there. of knowing the reality of our place in the universe. And it's just it's a good example of the grand, incredibly grand scope. It's just the grandest, greatest horror ever. And that, just to give it a shorthand, is the old ones. Yeah. The old ones who ruled. What do you think? Just the Earth or... Oh, God, no. Just everything. Endless vistas of space and time. I yeah. mean... <laughs> Who see, appear to have been uh, tamped down eons ago and have just been waiting. Sleeping dead. De whatever that one phrase about... Both Cthulhu. sleeping and dead. Sleeping and he's... Yes. Seems to be at the same he's, he's time. He lies sleeping, but he's dead. But deadly, he's sleeping. Deadly dreaming. Dead to the world. Yeah. <laughs> but waiting. It's a good example of how he would describe things being 
beyond human comprehension. Like, we can't imagine someone who's dead and dreaming, but that's because our, our tiny human brains can't fathom it. And if we were to really understand it, we'd go immediately insane, yeah. according to Lovecraft. Of the old ones, the most notable is Cthulhu. Mm-hmm. And for the most part, all he does is wait. Yep. He just waits. He just waits. That's not that terrifying. But so much is built up around the mythos yeah. of Cthulhu that that's all he has to do. Now, actually, by the end of, of the story, Call of Cthulhu, Cthulhu is unleashed and eats a couple of sailors. Yeah. Pretty terrifying for the sailors. But he also sends terrifying dreams and makes people go crazy and that's die. True too. I mean, you know, when the moon is right and the stars are right and, you know, people are... Yeah. It's almost time to release him. That is not dead, which can eternal lie. And with strange eons, even death may die. Gee, that's catchy. It's a quote from the Necronomicon about great Cthulhu. If we don't do something quickly, this cult may succeed in awakening him from his age-long sleep. Maybe talking about the Call of Cthulhu, since we both read it, is a good opportunity to set up sort of a common trope of Lovecraft's writing, which is... His protagonist is typically a learned man. It's usually set yeah. up like it's a man who... There's kind of like, like a couple main settings, and one is like on board of a ship where there's no women, or in the drawing rooms of the academic academies. Where there are no women. Where there are no women. <laughs> and so it's usually a man who is intelligent and therefore skeptical, or... Who assures you he's not mad or given to flights of fancy. Right. But wait till you hear this. Right. And other times, and sometimes concurrently, he's learning things that we as the reader are going, oh man, stop doing that thing. But he's too intellectual to realize that he's messing with dark forces. Sure. Anyway, but The Call of Cthulhu is a good example of this because it's a, it's a the protagonist is a man who is piecing together this information from his uncle's. His great uncles his great uncles found like a box full of like news clippings and scribblings. Yes. And he's sort of putting it together. Reading and reading then he starts kind of researching journal it. entries, reading letters. And it takes him all over the world because what he's piecing together is his great uncle was this intellectual who was visited by a young man who had this stone with these writings on it. And he knew this from his studies, and then he went to this conference, and at the conference... Was a police officer yeah. who had a similar stone that he took from this crazy voodoo bust in uh-huh. Louisiana. In Louisiana. Which was just undescribable horrors, but he came out with one of these things. Yep. And the protagonist reads a newspaper article from New Zealand about this ship, and then he goes to track down the one survivor from this who knows what happened, and he doesn't find him, but the man's just died, but he finds his wife who gives him his letters, and then he reads... So it's quite often these stories are intellectual, learned men who, like you said, are rational. They remain skeptical almost all the way through, you know? You don't understand. The Spawn are probably part of a cult of Cthulhu. And they might be planning to awaken him from his slumber on the ocean's floor. That's bad. And according to this, the stars are in the right position to try such a resurrection only once every 60 years. And the next favorable time is... Let me guess. Tonight. How'd you know? The Call of Cthulhu specifically ends with, like, I'll probably be killed through mysterious means. And so will anyone who has read about this. Which means you, you at home... Yes, he says, I hope that whoever finds these papers in the event of my early untimely death, which I predict is soon, you know, that I hope whoever finds my papers will exercise judgment and not eagerness to share it. But, you know, as you're reading, you're like, like, no, no, I just read it. it. No! Yeah. Fools! 
You may have won this time, but Cthulhu cannot be destroyed. He waits and dreams in the deep, and the cities of man shall fall before him. Yeah, yeah, sure. Book them, boys. And, and I might add, I'm not kidding you. I don't know what this means, but I was reading Call of Cthulhu, which describes all of these people simultaneously having psychotic episodes and odd dreams. Yeah. People all over the world. And I realized, I had this moment where I was like, oh my gosh, I have been having nightmares every night for about a week, maybe a little longer. And it's roughly coincided with the time I've been reading the Lovecraft stories. I was like, oh God. Without getting into what my nightmare was, in the four weeks that we've been reading up on Lovecraft, I had a nightmare intense enough that I like got up, searched the rooms, did go back to sleep fully dressed. What? Okay, not fully dressed. I pulled on some jeans. But what, you pull, Wow. It was like, it's one of those dreams where you wake up and it's go time, but you don't know for what. Right. So, you know, you just pull on your jeans and then... That's terrifying. You sort of wipe away with the cobwebs. And it's like, I say you. I, uh-huh. I don't even know if this is a universal experience. And then just like, well, I'm just gonna go get a, you know, head off to the bathroom, but check a couple rooms on my way. You're braver than I. I usually just cower and wait on whatever boogeyman it is to come get me and pray that it will happen sooner rather than later. <laughs> but then rather keyed up, I then like I laid back down but like I still had my jeans on. So we had a similar experience. Yep, I mean, both the, of us have experienced nightmares the while nightmares I've been having have been intense. Well yours are poor. Really, Mine was just once and it was intense. Mine have been consistently every night for at least a week. So Folks, uh, read all the Lovecraft you want. Yeah. You, Just don't try to overdo it. We warned you here first. Uh, don't wanna... try to cram Lovecraft because you have a podcast coming up. Right. One more general note is that while there may be moments, and there were plenty of moments for me, where I was reading it very conscious of, like, I see the dread he's trying to build here, but... I'm a modern lady. It's 2015. Like, I'm not scared of I've got of a this. cell phone, Lovecraft. What you gonna do about that? Yeah. You know, there's plenty of stuff that, that, boop, that boop, is, boop. can be kind of laughable. Uh, that Because you go like, oh, ooh, that's scary. But, but. Yeah. I think, first of all, the the writing to me, it's very dense and very much my style of the kind of thing I enjoy reading. Yeah. Which I, I can't full... wait to read this stuff just for pleasure and not... Yeah. Because I have a, uh, yeah. a deadline. Like, I will pick my book up again and finish the rest of it. Like, the rest of the stories I didn't get to read. But while I find there, there's plenty of specifics in the stories to either laugh at or cringe at, and that I'll get to in a second. But I think, in general, when you're reading a, a good chunk of it in a row, you start to realize there's this general, overwhelming sense of kind of, like, loneliness and sadness. And like you said, gloominess, the Rhode Island just gloom mm. that for me anyway, was really affecting and probably is what was giving me nightmares, which is just this very bleak idea that keeps cycling through his stories, which is just this very lonely, upsetting isolation, I guess. I mean, there's one story where the character is describing, like, I don't know how long I've been here. I'm, uh, it's called The Outsider. He's like, I don't know why I'm here. I know people have been keeping me alive for years. I'm going to try to climb these castle walls and get out of here. And then, like, eventually climbs, and it's a very short story, and reaches, like, a glass 
ceiling and then he climbs out of it and he's back on the floor of the place he started. Like, it's this really weird dystopian, like, mm. he's, I, I just think, generally speaking, of course it's outdated, as it were, and we can't quite relate to these stoic, you know, drawing room dramas. I do think if you're willing to give yourself over to it and train your brain to read this language, because for me it took days of, like, forcing myself to sit down and get my brain used to it when I'm used to reading Stephen King and BuzzFeed. Um, but once you get into that rhythm, it's, yeah. it took my brain to, like, a really bad place, I think, if you give it a shot. The other thing I wanted to mention, but I think we'd be remiss in not mentioning... There are a lot of people who are very critical of Lovecraft because he, a lot of subject matter is pretty racist. I don't know how much of that you ran across. I, I did. Well, he would use the word like half caste, mm. and some people might be referred to as mongrels. Yes, and there is stuff that's even more explicitly bad than that. I'm thinking in the Reanimator story, one of the beasts as he describes it that they bring back to life is um an african-american and is described as kind of very animal-like and, and um i didn't want to go without saying something it's you know it's it's noticed it's acknowledged actually i read something that made me feel a little better it was a it was a think piece on salon.com this woman's take on it. Lovecraft's contempt for and horror at what he saw as the degraded brute physicality of non-wasps was really his dread of physicality itself. Like most racists, and despite the man-of-his-time defense, Lovecraft was worse than many of his day. The loathing he directed at others was a deflected form of self-hatred. That doesn't excuse it any more than you get a pass on kicking a puppy because you had a bad day at the office. We need to be able to accept the truth that even great artists, greater ones than Lovecraft certainly, have their ugly sides and that ugliness can be inextricable from their greatness. Art, being human, is an expression of the whole self. This isn't the same as accepting his racism. You can acknowledge, contemplate, and discuss that racism without feeling obliged to reject the work as a whole. So anyway, I think it is important to say that there are some pretty cringeworthy moments in reading, and not all as of As a modern stories, reader. But yeah, you know, you go, oh, okay, he's expressing a particular horror at a race of people. That's, that's not pretty. But um, he's still writing well. <laughs> Yeah, well, I mean, if you look at racism as a result of a fear. Right. This is a guy who peddles in fear. <laughs> and uh, what's scarier than a reanimated man coming back for you? A black one. Right. <laughs> if you're already scared of black people. Yeah. Oh, okay. And that just compounds the fear. It does. That's a really good point. That's a really good yeah, way to frame thanks. it, is if you're afraid of the mixing of races, then sure, that's then, a then... good bit of horror there for you. Yeah. Oh, Lovecraft. Do you mind if we dance with your dates? Why, no, not at all. Go right ahead. Now, Lovecraft, people will point to um, as a centerpiece to his work. You know, like, like um, for Bram Stoker, people point to Dracula, even though he wrote other stuff. Yep. For Lovecraft, they point to Cthulhu, even though... Not a ton has actually been done with Cthulhu himself, yeah. right? What it is really is the concept. The Cthulhu mythos. The is Cthulhu how I hear it mythos, to, which includes the Necronomicon. Um... Yeah. Okay. Well, let's let's go there. Sure. 
Well, I, I want to start talking about movies in this movie podcast. Movie. Yeah. <laughs> I want to start talking about movies in this horror movie podcast. Of course. And before movies, it was other writers who would pick up the Cthulhu mythos and would use the Necronomicon. And then um, with time, films picked it up. And really, Lovecraft's big contribution that lasted outside of his own work is he created a world. And he created a world that other people could enter and use themselves and carry into other works and other types of work. It really captured people's imagination big time. I can see yeah. why. The story's really good. And it is malleable. Mm-hmm. It can be used to fit other you know things Well, outside of the short story, outside of the short film, outside of even the horror film. You are invited to an open house where horror will be your host. Starring Vincent Price, a being who lived and died and lives again. The first movie to be made out of a Lovecraft story was then incorporated into the American International Pictures Edgar Allan Poe series. So while if you read the credits, it'll say, screenplay by this guy, based on a story by Lovecraft, but they use the title of a Poe poem to sell the movie, uh, which is The Haunted Palace. Came out in 1963. It was another um, directed by Roger Corman, starring Vincent Price, Poe film that, you know, I'm pretty fond of. What Lovecraft was it based on? It was based on the case of Charles Dexter Ward. It wasn't set back into the Poe days. But because Poe's what's old, and they already had all the, the castle sets and costumes and stuff, that's the kind of movie they made. Oh, okay. In the beginning, they have a, like a little recitation of the poem, of A Haunted Palace, and it's, it's, it's in a palace. And it centers around a guy comes to a town, and he's like, which way to this estate? And everyone's like, you'll get no answers from me. And there's like three movies like that that I've uh-huh. seen sure. <laughs> now where they're like, well, maybe I'll ask this fellow. Hey there, fellow. How do I get to this estate? Uh, get back in your carriage and go back home. That's the best advice I have for you. In the haunted palace, necromancy is used to wreak a horrible vengeance upon a 19th century New England village. But as we shall see, there is danger that this awesome power may also consume he who wields it. So... Yeah, just interesting, um, having to uh, introduce Lovecraft to the movie-going audience via Poe. And that one, again, is uh, Haunted Palace. Pretty nice, up there in the um, Poe, even though it's not really, uh, Corman films. Mm -hmm. Also notable, it's the first film to ever feature the Necronomicon. Oh, yeah, that is notable. The Necronomicon. Dr. Corey. I've got to get to the library right away. He invokes the unspeakable. She invites it. The Dunwich Horror, based on H.P. Lovecraft's terrifying tale of those who explore the supernatural. Sandra Dee, Dean Stockwell, Ed Begley, Sam Jaffe in The Dunwich Horror. The the Dunwich Horror is set in modern-day 1970. And instead of, I'll just call him the antagonist, being like seven feet tall and possessing goat-like features, it's a uh, 1970s Dean Stockwell. Come back, old ones. 
princes of darkness and repossess the earth. As a like horror movie for you know, like the old ones are coming, not that scary. But as far as a date rapey movie, where like he just invites a girl over and then sabotages her car and he's like, well, I guess I have to spend the weekend. And she likes him, but he keeps dosing her tea to the eventual end of making her a human sacrifice. But there's a lot of, you know, sex overtones in uh-huh. the meantime. And the girl is played by the original Gidget oh. from the movie, oh. uh, Sandra D. So I guess anybody of the time who's used to just seeing her as Gidget yeah. then get all horned up on an altar... Uh, yeah, yeah I'm sorry. I'm, I'm experiencing this along with the people you're talking about. When I hear Sandra D, I didn't realize she ever did anything other than super innocent stuff. As a matter of fact, honey, this luau is not a luau. It's an orgy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Will you fellas stop treating me like an infant? She's not nude in it, is she? No, no, but she does a lot of writhing. Ooh. Yeah, does some it's good. <laughs> All right. Psychedelic riding scenes. I love that. I can imagine it now. So, uh, so check that out. I will. Uh, then it was Die Monster Die. They fought for their love in a world haunted by horror. Well, in um, Die Monster Die, it was based on the color out of space, in which a meteor lands in an area, uh, which originally was a farm. And it starts affecting the vegetation, and it starts affecting the animals, and it starts affecting the family that lives there, and it's like sapping their, I don't know, life force just out, it's draining them until there's like, like just husks. Stephen King segment of Creep Show, or not unlike <laughs> where he's he starts turning into the mossy the, plant, the, the vegetation, yeah. yeah. But instead of it being a farm, it's a one of those creepy estates that you can't get a ride out. Like when the American shows up. Takes place in England. Mm. Boris Karloff lives there. He comes from a line of like warlocks, and a meteor landed there. Right. It's kind of trying to really mix. Yeah. A couple things. It's not an even there. fit. Yeah. I'll say. <laughs> Uh, there's been a lot of stories put out by Lovecraft, so uh, Kat read some and I read some, and there's been a lot of movies. We recently realized that we may have not crossed any common ground, so we made sure um, we were both up to speed with Reanimator. Yep. Herbert West is at the top of his class in medical school. What are you? He's brilliant, but a little weird. I've broken the 6 to 12 minute barrier. I've conquered brain death. Herbert West brought a lot of dead people back to life. And not one of them showed any appreciation. H.P. Lovecraft's classic tale of horror, Reanimator. Uh, you watched it on Netflix? Yeah. Sumo Dan, who actually suggested this topic. I knew that we'd be doing a Lovecraft episode eventually. Yeah. But he said, hey, why not do it for February? Because love, Lovecraft, uh-huh. Valentine's Day. Yeah. Like Genius. That makes sense. Yeah. So Even that, if in name only. Yeah, in, in yeah. name only, we are tying in Valentine's Day with love and mm-hmm. Lovecraft. Yeah. A man who preferred to be alone. <laughs> wow. In any case, he lent me his copy Reanimator DVD, which the benefit of that is a commentary. It actually has two commentaries. Ooh. Uh, with the two commentaries, I picked the one that had the director. The director who is, which is who? Stuart Gordon. There it is. 
who I can now sort of add to that pantheon of talented creative people who didn't start out saying, I'm going to be a horror director, but for mostly economic reasons, made their first movie a horror movie, like Sam Raimi, like George Romero, and got enough success with that horror that they just got locked into the genre. Right. And that was his case. He worked mostly in the theater, decided it was time to try to make a movie, and said, well, what kind of movie should I make? And it just made sense to make a horror movie. Good economic sense. Mm Mm-hmm. So he wanted to make a Frankenstein movie. Somebody said, hey, check out this short you story. you read this story? Yeah. In order to read it at the time, he had to go to the, like, the special collections part of the Chicago library and... Sit there and read it. At the time, he could Xerox it, actually. Oh. But um, I think like people had to handle it with gloves and because it was just in the old pulp magazine that they had. And he had to wait six months before they could get around to having him in so they could like present it to him. And this story, by the way, was published in six installments in yes. magazines. So when we you're reading it, gets repetitive. <laughs> every chapter has a recap. Yeah. By the third time they re-described what Herbert West looked like, I was like, oh, this was in installments. I get it now. Right. Blonde, bespectacled, slight yes. of frame. Yeah. Over Which, and over and over again. The actor? Jeffrey Stuart- Combs. Jeffrey Combs did such a good job at not only fitting the bill as described in the book, and very, very odd. Yes. And he gets a lot of great lines, and he gets to do a lot of great over-the-top. Such a good performer. You'll never get credit for my discovery. Who's going to believe a talking head? Get a job in a sideshow. It's about a guy who is working on a way to restore life via an injection. With Obsessed with it. Everything else takes a, a backseat. In the film, he's a medical student. In the... Story, he He's goes from being a medical student to being a doctor to doctor. being a lieutenant in the war voluntarily because he wanted to be around a bunch of jacked up bodies. Well, the freshly dead. Yeah. That was the problem. Any subjects he got would be a little too far gone and he couldn't revive them. He needs people very freshly dead to inject his special solution into to reanimate them. To, to reanimate what them. end? We don't know. It's just he's obsessed with making this happen. Yeah. And we'll go to any lengths to do it. So while the narrator would just sort of follow him anywhere, in the movie, it's a guy who gets wrapped up in it just a little at a time, where at first it's like he's just comes in and the cat is attacking him. He tried to revive the cat. And he's like, my cat was never dead, but now it is. He's like, no, it was dead before I brought it back. Now it's dead. I don't believe you. So he brings it back again. But then the girlfriend witnesses. She freaks out, so they have to tell the dean. And then... Well, he goes to tell the dean because, when I say he, it's the student who Herbert West has come to live with who has seen him bring back his dead cat twice. But he goes to the dean to explain about what Herbert West has been doing because he's like, you have to understand, he's like he's done something Give this guy whatever he wants. And what does the dean of the school do? He says, you're both kicked out yeah. of medical school. Seven years of college down the drain. So what you were explaining is versus the story where West's assistant is fascinated by his work and increasingly kind of afraid to leave him. The guy in the movie becomes his assistant ostensibly because they both need to reanimate a human body to prove that what he's doing is real so they can not ruin their entire medical career. And it just snowballs and and snowballs from there. They sneak into the morgue. Try to reanimate a really big guy. He's very big. Big old guy. Very naked. Lots of penis in this movie. Yeah, because uh, 
corpses in the morgue are naked. Please continue. I want to talk about that a well, little more later. Just said it, it snowballed and snowballed right up to the end and then into the sequel, actually. Oh, really? Because, well, you know how it ends, which is the beautiful Barbara Crampton dies. And he's like, hey, I got a whole bag full of uh, bring back juice. So he injects it into her. Fade to black. Blackout. You hear her scream. Screaming. Yeah. For part two, they couldn't get her back, but they did save her brain. And now it's Herbert West convincing him to continue with the research because they can bring back uh, Meg. We can bring back Meg. So this guy, through two movies, goes from getting caught up in it a little to caught up in it more to being caught up in it a lot. And by the end of just part one, he's caught up in it a lot. Yeah. Um, I'm sorry, you were saying penises? Well, I I guess I just... Being a woman who has seen a lot of horror movies, and I mean, we all know there are a lot of topless women in movies, in horror movies especially. This movie it's being no exception. Part No. It's part of the genre, it's part of the exploitation. From the darkness of the night comes the peeping phantom. I enjoy of the nudity as much as any other red-blooded American male. Um, yes, I heard myself. Okay. But I am very conscious of, you know, it's not always a positive thing. All of that is to say, I am always very appreciative when movies are equal opportunity nude, uh, n- nudifying. Um, Barbara Crampton appears pretty much completely naked. Definitely. Yeah. Total. Yeah. Full frontal. But so do, like, five dudes and some more women. And as you said, you're like, well, it's a morgue full of corpses. Of course, they're going to be naked because they're on the They could have had sheets. Well, they could. They That's what I'm saying. A different movie, a, a differently spirited film might have figured out a way that they didn't have to have actors running around with their with their danglers flopping around for a long sequence. I mean, well, I, for one, really appreciate the unrated, just no holds barred. But I, I just love that it's schlocky and it's gratuitous, but it's not mean spirited. It's all in the spirit of this kind of pulpy story. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? It, totally. it makes sense versus just like nudity for no reason. It's like, well, this is the genre. And this is I why felt, we're here. I felt safe about it, I guess. I felt okay with it. Plus it was... I felt like those actors, all the actors are like in the same movie together and no one's getting exploited and it's fun. Plus when it came up to scenes of just straight up molestation. Yeah. It was so over the top that it just felt okay. You mean the guy holding his decapitated head between her legs? (laughs) Yeah, and and the root down. (laughs) Yeah. Um, (laughs) Yeah. As he kisses down her body. Oh, right. Leaving a trail of blood from his bloody decapitated head as his headless body holds his head. It is so ridiculous. Yeah. And for that reason, I agree with you. Fun. You're you're really not in the moment. No. When that's going on. The, The moment you're in is just, what? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Even though slightly thereafter, a whole room full of dead people rise up, I think that's still the zenith of its craziness. I room agree. full of dead Absolutely. people I've seen before. Oh, of course. I hadn't seen that before. God, no. And never since. This is a warning. If you are squeamish, a victim of nightmares, or have a weak heart. Know your fright motions before you see H.P. Lovecraft's classic tale of horror, Reanimator. I wanted to read just a tiny bit of Herbert West Reanimator. Sure. Um, I can still see Herbert West 
under the sinister electric light as he injected his reanimating solution into the arm of the headless body. The scene I cannot describe. I should faint if I tried it, for there is madness in a room full of classified charnel things, with blood and lesser human debris almost ankle-deep on the slimy floor, and with hideous reptilian abnorm abnormalities sprouting, bubbling, and baking over a winking bluish-green specter of dim flame in a far corner of black shadows. You know, it gets increasingly more horrific as the sections of the story yeah. go on. And that one is almost the, you know, it's almost the end. And if you really think about what he's saying, the narrator's describing Herbert West standing over this headless body. He's decapitated. And by the way, like sewn skin over the stump of the neck. So it's like sealed over and he's injecting the fluid in. And then on the ground, it's almost ankle deep in mess in yeah. like slushy human remains i'm so sorry it doesn't get more disgusting than that like it's buried in the words you know and i think in many ways people find reading these kinds of things really inaccessible because it doesn't read like something reads today and it's hard on the brain but when you really look at what he's saying i mean that image is if i saw that in person i mean immediately I would be immediately like ruined for life if I saw someone sloshing around almost ankle deep in you. You would just go mad at the very sight of it. Wow! Yes, I would. I wouldn't. I might. <laughs> okay. Anyway, I just think it's a really good example of the fact that Lovecraft did go there. I guess sometimes, at least in this story. And I love. I just have a deep affection for how they took certain aspects of the story and made them work for the movie in ways that were like really fun and comical. Like in the story, the man that was decapitated that West tries to like animate his head separate from his body. And he's doing all these weird things yeah. in the story. He shows back up years later with his head like in a bag next to him and a waxen head on top of his body with hordes of other things that Herbert has like, you know, messed with over the years to come kill him. And in the movie, it's they do that. They do like, that. He's got a fake One of head the on top of the body. craziest parts of the 1985 movie is actually from the 1920s. I love that. Pulp story. I love that. It's so fun that they were like and you can just imagine them going, well, we have to keep this in. This is great. It's yes. so fun. Of course, they, they then took it to the next. Now, what if he takes that head and just goes uh, pervy on a girl with it? Absolutely. Teenage boy. Like, combining the most disgusting, horrific thing ever with, like, boobies. Boobs. You know? And some great boobs they are. <laughs> Never read any Lovecraft. What would you suggest, Marshall? If, if someone's gonna go read one story, what do you think you would tell them I mean, to go read? Just to get the cred, I'd say Call of Cthulhu. But just experience reading, I'd say The Dunwich Horror. Okay. Which, as we come to a close here, something that Lovecraft is credited with is really good last lines. 
Yeah. And the Dunnage Horror definitely has one of those. Sometimes they're kind of melodramatic, those last lines of his. Yeah. But I was looking straight in his face. Yeah. I think I'd say for horror cred and for just enlightening yourself on, I think I had an idea of what I thought Cthulhu was, but it was very different from what I thought and I found it thoroughly engrossing. So I'd say read that. And I'm gonna say Herbert West Reanimator just because it's a nice contrast. It's really gross and bloody and maybe it's not written. And it's fun. It is fun. And, and, and the I, you know what? That's a word that hasn't been bandied about very much in this episode. Yeah. That one is fun. It is. You've got things like the assistant coming home to find Herbert West with a dead body who he's like, uh, he's a traveler who just showed up here and dropped dead on the doorstep. And then the end of that section is him reanimating the body for a second. And the corpse cries out like, what are you doing? Get away from me with that needle. So then the assistant knows that Herbert came and actually killed him. He didn't killed him so he could try to bring him back. Yeah. So like, it sounds boring with me describing it, but it, it you is bring fun. it to life for all of us. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. I'd say read those two. I know that there are two that are really well known. Obviously you can go for those deep cuts. The more obscure stuff is really neat to kind of engross yourself in. But I'd say those two are really good opposites. And not taken as Lovecraft, but just taken on their own merits. Um, some of the, the movies mentioned. Definitely Reanimator. It's a God, romp. yes. It was so much fun. And, you know, the first time I watched it uh, was with friends. It's so a good way to do it. If you can do that. Yes. By all means. Hopefully friends who don't know that a man's going to hold his severed live head between a woman's legs and also first time i watched it was with a girl oh sure so but we were both just like what other things we've mentioned the haunted palace it's a uh, just fine as a uh corman poe movie how's vincent price in it is he very pricey he's good one of the things is he gets possessed by one of his ancestors. Oh. And so only through performance, he doesn't like mess up his hair or anything when he's one guy and then straightens it out. Isn't you know, like the whole Jekyll Hyde thing? <laughs> but it's just how he speaks and how he carries himself. You can tell who he is at any given point. Okay. Just through performance. And it's just waiting for you on YouTube. Yeah. People. And then uh, Die Monster Die. Any Karloff's good Karloff. And they do show a monster in Haunted Palace, and it's kind of lackluster. But there's a little, um, they, they call it a, a zoo from hell, I think, or a hellish zoo in uh, Die, Monster, Die. And that one's better looking. Definitely a, a better menagerie of creatures. Mm-hmm. Plus some uh, pre-Evil Dead plant attack when they're in the greenhouse <laughs> with all the plants that have been affected by the meteor. And then uh, the Dunwich Horror, you can check it out. It can get kind of slow. But um, Dean Stockwell is good in everything he does. And if you've only seen Gidget be Gidget, you want to see her doing something else? Cat. Yeah. Writhing. Uh, sensual psychedelic writhing. Oh, God. Keep saying more words I like. <laughs> With an, one of those horror endings where it's like, everything's okay. Or is it? <laughs> it's got one of those. So there you are, Cat and listeners. H.P. Lovecraft. You've heard of him for a reason. He's a guy who wasn't really much appreciated in his own time outside of some dedicated followers. Those followers put in some elbow grease and made sure um, he's available if you want to find him. Because he could have just gone into obscurity and no one would have ever heard of him. 
but yeah. just the fact that he's not everywhere, but like you were saying, instead of having to go to the library into the dusty tomes, mm-hmm. you just pulled him up on the internet. Yeah. This is one of those Boys and Ghouls episodes where I'm really thankful that we do this. I'm thankful every month, but I'm thankful for the times that hold me accountable for learning about something I need to know about as someone who loves horror and wants to have a deeper understanding of what I say I love and what I tell people I have a podcast about. Because while Marshall and I don't know everything, we are deep appreciators and we always want to learn in life and in horror and this was a really fun, I'm so thankful I did this because I, and I can't wait to finish the stories I haven't finished yet. Okay, if we can both just uh, tamp down our nightmares, maybe we'll make it the rest of the way. Yeah, maybe I should stop reading. I'm definitely taking a break. Okay. But I will definitely be also revisiting. You know what? As we record this, it's February. Yeah. I'll probably pick them back up again in October. Yeah. yeah, there's one, there was a title that I really wanted to get to that I just didn't have time for in my book called The Dreams in the Witch House. That sounds like one for October. Indeed. See you then. Well, folks, we'll be seeing you in March. Yep. I guess for what will be our 36th episode. I just realized that before I got out of the car to come in here, I tweeted, like, anybody have any questions for us? We're recording an episode, and I just thought to check Twitter. Uh, But we actually got somebody tweeting at us. Clay Thomas. Hi, Clay. He is at mild underscore violence on Twitter. Thank you for it just being mild violence. Hmm. Not strong violence. Just mild. He said... Rated PG-13 for mild violence. That's right. (laughs) Oh, Clay. Um, he says a mini review of the guest. I don't know if he's, I don't. That's I don't. not a question. That's just a statement. That's not even a statement. What does that mean? He's asking for a mini review of the guest. Okay. I have very strong opinions, which are, it was my very favorite movie of 2014 and of like, I don't know, the last five years. And I know that's a strong statement, but I'm sticking to it. Um, if you're listening to this, and you haven't seen the guest, which I I guess you might not have. It wasn't in wide release, but it's on Blu-ray now. And I paid 25 American dollars to obtain my copy of the Blu-ray because I'm obsessed with the movie. And I always hesitate saying anything about this movie to anyone. And I just say, just watch it. But what I will say is if you're a fan of horror and Halloween, both the John Carpenter film and The Holiday, this movie was tailor-made for you. This this movie was tailor-made for me. It's like someone reached into my brain and picked out all the things I want in a movie and put it into a movie. Okay, well... It's fun, it's violent, it's non-violent, it's charming, it's funny. It's one of the most perfectly cast movies in every single role that I've ever seen. It's just a really well-made movie. So... Thank you, Clay, for bringing it to my attention to talk about it for a hundred years, which I could do, but I won't. I'll just say go get it. If you go buy the Blu-ray, it's totally worth it. Okay. You haven't seen it yet, Marshall? No. (laughs) I shall show it to you. I promise to not watch it until we can watch it together. You don't know anything about it? Only what you've told me. And you failed to mention anything about the plot or characters. Yes. Then I've succeeded. Don't read the tagline, you guys. If you buy it, go buy it on Blu-ray and then go walk up to the counter with your hand over your eyes and go, don't tell me anything about this. I just want to buy it. And then take it home, put it the Blu-ray in the player and keep your eyes closed through the menu and just press play and just watch it. That's my mini review is okay. go spend $25 Cat's on it. mini review it. is a heart emoji. <laughs> yes. Excellent. 
And uh, Kat, anything to add to that? No. I think I've said enough. Oh, you're trying to set me up for... Yeah. Sorry. Kat, anything to add to that? Just to beware the moon.